Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. This podcast contains disturbing content. Listener discretion advised. Almost a decade ago, opportunist producer River Donahue heard a story he's still thinking about all these years later. He calls it the dirtbags at Dope Lake. I guess we start with the dirtbags. So maybe for the last 50 years or more, there's this underground community of rock climbers living illegally in Yosemite National Park. They call themselves dirtbags. And growing up, I had a friend named Pete who was one of them. And we should say, the term dirtbag is not a derogatory term. We're talking capital D dirtbag, not like generally skeezy dude. Pete told River a dirtbag legend about a plane that crashed in Yosemite in the late 1970s. A plane carrying approximately 5,000 pounds of cannabis. Like literal tons, like thousands of pounds of weed. Just waiting in this plane. There have been rumors flying around about this weed plane since the 1970s. Rumors that the plane belonged to the mafia or a cartel. And the dirtbags stole the drugs right from under their noses and got rich. But that's all that River had. Rumors. It was hearsay when he learned it, and I'm learning it from him, so it's like a game of telephone. Like, where's the truth? Where's the reality of this? And where is the legend, the myth-making of it? If there's even any truth at all. When River first started asking around about the drug plane, no one would talk. And that's the biggest clue that this is true. Because with a story this good, there's no reason anyone wouldn't want to tell it again and again. Not unless they were scared of the police, the DEA, and most of all, of the drug dealers who lost millions of dollars worth of weed and may still want it back. If you're a dirtbag who stole those drugs and got rich, you'd probably want to keep quiet too. But as he got to the bottom of it, River realized there was more to the story than some lucky rock climbers who hit it big. There's a darker side to it all, and a victim who none of us saw coming. From Cast Media, this is The Opportunist, a podcast about regular people who turn sinister simply by embracing opportunity. Today, we're doing something a little different. We have an event characterized and driven by the opportunism of everyone involved. This is the first and only episode on the dirtbags at Dope Lake. I'm Hannah Smith. I was probably 15. We go to lunch together, and you'd tell me all the stories about living as a dirtbag. So I guess, like, let's start there. Let's go back to that. Like, what is a dirtbag? Okay, a dirtbag is like the ultimate climber, scrounger. They'll do absolutely anything to climb. This is River's friend, Pete Hoffmeister. These days, Pete is a novelist, sponsored rock climber, and host of an adventure and storytelling podcast called Boring is a Swear Word. So, if you think about climbing as a pursuit, nobody really makes money doing it. 
like I have a couple sponsors. I don't make any money. Alex Honnold joked in Free Solo that even though he's one of the best athletes in the world, he makes the same amount of money as a moderately successful dentist. So if you if you go back to like a needs and wants list with just humans, the dirtbags have simplified everything. They're like, well, I can sleep anywhere. I can literally sleep in the dirt. I can drink any fresh water that's purified and I can eat any available food. Back in the 90s, Pete was a young climber, dumpster diving for food and dirtbagging anytime he could. In 2001, he met a dirtbag crew in Yosemite National Park and stayed with them in Yosemite's Camp 4. So the Yosemite dirtbags, what they do is um, as tourists leave a campground, they leave behind old food in bear boxes. And what you do as a dirtbag, what I did as a dirtbag, is you just go through those abandoned bear boxes after people leave, or sometimes before they leave, and you just scrounge whatever foods you can find. So sometimes that's like a bag of crusties, pancake mix, some peanut butter, and some syrup. And then you know what you're eating for the next week or two, which is pancakes with peanut butter and syrup. Back then, like today, there were strict rules for camping. Visitors were only allowed to stay in the park for two weeks at a time and 30 days total per year. So the dirtbags found ways around the rules. You've got to do little tricks. you got to be smuggled in the back of a van into the park so you're not counted as a person. Hmm. Or you drive in after the ranger booths are closed late at night. And then when you leave, you leave at three in the morning. So there's no ranger. So you were never there both ways. There's lots of different little dirtbag tricks that we all employ. Some people are living in their vans. Some people are living in big boulder caves right behind Camp 4 with the bears. With the Um, bears? Yeah, you heard that right. Hundreds of black bears call the Yosemite Valley home, and the dirtbags lived right beside them, sometimes literally. One time, Pete watched a bear sit down next to a sleeping climber. When the man woke up and screamed, the bear took a swing at his head. Just blood everywhere, broken orbital bone, broken cheekbone, and they had to you know, take him to Fresno and reconstruct his face. There's probably an entire episode we could do just about the wild, dangerous lives of dirtbags. But the story of the drug plane, that's the wildest and the most dangerous. Tell me how you first heard about it. We were just in Camp 4, and I heard the story of, like, the great weed score of the 1970s. I started asking around, but the thing was, a lot of the people that I knew didn't want to talk about it. And some of the people I climbed with, you know, some of these very famous climbers were like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's not something we actually talk about. So I was like, well, is it something that people talk about? Is it a myth that people talk about? Or is this a true story? Is this a legend? Did this really happen? I don't know. But whenever people don't want to talk about something, I know there's a bigger story there. Eventually, Pete found an older dirtbag who trusted him enough to open up. From the climbers I know who actually went to the plane, they said that the plane shattered the ice and the oil and jet fuel spilled out of the plane because one of the wings was completely torn off. And so even when it was dried out, you knew if it was Lodestar Lightning because Lodestar Lightning smelled a little bit like gasoline. Lodestar Lightning. That's a phrase you'll hear a couple more times throughout this episode. That's what they called the stolen weed. But the name is also a perfect example of just how messy and convoluted this story is. The first part of the name, Lodestar, refers to a Lockheed Lodestar plane, which everyone thought was the make and model of the plane. 
they were wrong. Lightning is based on the rumor that the gasoline-soaked buds burst into flames when you smoked them. But I haven't found any proof of that. See, the truth about the dirtbags at Dope Lake is so tangled with rumors and exaggerations that it's hard to separate the facts from fiction. Um, but nobody really, I mean, I don't know if anybody's ever going to know, but maybe that's part of what this podcast discovers is figuring out which plane it was. Oh, don't lay that on me, man. (laughs) (laughs) Oh no, we got to cut this right out. No, it's about the legend, baby. It's about the, (laughs) it's becoming myth, you know, it's not about, I mean, it's a good, it's a good legend. (laughs) It's not a myth. I mean, the story is definitely not a myth. He's right. Over the past few weeks, River reached out to multiple dirtbags who were supposedly involved with Dope Lake. One was the hiker who discovered the plane, but no one returned our calls or messages. Without talking to the people who were there, all we had were rumors. Or we did, until a few days later when River got this voicemail from Pete. River, oh my gosh, dude, I'm so excited for you. Sorry, I didn't get your message right away. I was projecting climbing routes, but I did get it last night, and I couldn't call you last night because I had to track something down. I have a surprise for you. So just give me a call back whenever you get this. All right, love you, buddy. Bye. Here is his surprise. So I climbed in Yosemite. I did my first climb in the valley in 1966. This is Jack Menendez, an old Yosemite dirtbag and a friend of Pete's. I used to hitchhike up to the valley. Sometimes ride on the back of a motorcycle or in the back of a truck. (laughs) We would go up there every weekend if we could. And then in 1974, I spent a year up there. During that year, I lived on a dollar twenty-five a day, uh, twenty-five cents for my campsite, which I shared with three other people. You know, it was the dirt bag experience, and uh, it was just uh, loads of fun. Apparently, Pete reached out to Jack to see if he'd heard any rumors about Dope Lake. But Jack had more than that. Some people made like five trips. But we had, you know, as much as we could deal with anyway. I didn't ever have that much pot in my life. And this was like a thousand times more pot than I'd ever seen. Jack had been to the plane. He even stole some of the weed himself. And now he was ready to tell us what really happened. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Shopify helps you sell at every stage of your business. Like that, let's put it online and see what happens stage. And the site is live. That we opened a store and need a fast checkout stage. Thanks. You're all set. That count it up and ship it around the globe stage. This one's going to Thailand. And that, wait, did we just hit a million orders stage? Whatever your stage, businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for your $1 a month trial at shopify.com slash listen.
These are all the facts we can piece together from old newspaper articles. On December 9th, 1976, a plane took off from Mexico, packed with at least 5,000 pounds of weed. But as the plane flew over California, something went wrong. It crashed into an isolated lake in southeastern Yosemite called Lower Merced Pass. There was no one around to see the plane go down or to hear it smash through the lake's foot-thick layer of ice. It sat there for more than a month until a lost hiker stumbled across the wreckage. The man reported the crash to the park rangers who hiked up to investigate. Once they saw the drugs, they called the feds. This was late January or early February in the high country of Yosemite National Park, and the weather turned bad. So the authorities decided not to bother with the plane until spring thaw. They just posted a sign asking hikers to stay out and walked away. I've seen a picture of this sign, actually. It's red with handwritten lettering that says, Lower Merced Pass Lake closed for law enforcement emergency. That's it. No caution tape. No guards posted to protect the crime scene, or the weed, or the dead bodies still trapped inside the cockpit. Just one sign tied to a tree. There are a lot of conflicting stories about how the dirtbags in Camp 4 first heard about the plane. I've heard that a ranger tipped them off. I've also heard that the smuggler's lawyer leaked the story, or even that the climbers were actually working for the smugglers all along. That last one is a stretch. But regardless of how exactly the dirtbags found out, they did. By March of 1977, news was spreading fast. Here's Jack Menendez. My friend and I were going to go climb the uh, south face of the Washington Column, which we did. But before we went up, we heard these rumors, and uh, none of us believed them, that there was a plane full of pot that had crashed up at Lower Merced Pass Lake. And it was like, yeah, right. So we went up on the climb, and it was an overnight climb. I got back down the next day, and a friend of mine, who's like the biggest mooch for pot in Camp 4, is handing out lids to all his friends and payment for all of the mooching he had been doing over the years. And that's when I knew it was true. (laughs) He was paying everybody back. And it had to be true. For those of us who weren't buying weed in the 70s, a lid is an ounce. And if a guy who never had any weed was handing out ounces, Jack knew something was up. So he grabbed a few climber friends and headed for the lake. We kind of got greedy, and instead of packing a, a regular pack, I packed my haul bag. I didn't know, you know how much of this stuff I was going to find, but I was ready for a lot. <laughs> the rumors were true. Uh, I was supposed to be going to a midterm in my math class. <laughs> I kind of missed that. Later, Jack would graduate from Cal State with a math degree. But that day in 1977, college was the furthest thing from his mind. He just wanted to find that plane. Lower Merced Pass Lake is almost 10,000 feet up. It's so remote that it's not even on a trail. Jack and his friends drove as far as they could, but they had to walk the last 12 miles. At that point, it was snowing hard. It took them three or four hours to get there. I got up there, and it was really crazy because there was 
shovels and picks and tools and it was like there'd been a gold rush and literally there was people would carry that stuff up there and just leave it there there was even like sleeping bags and stuff that people just you know threw everything out so they could carry more pot down the hill some of the weed fell on the shore during the crash but it sounds like that had already been picked over so he stepped out onto the ice to check the plane itself now we're walking on the frozen lake but 100 yards further there was the airplane the tail sticking out of the lake and uh there was like a oil slick around it and the ice hadn't been able to freeze so you couldn't actually get into the airplane uh and the cockpit was underwater you could see where the cockpit was but you couldn't really see what was in it sure it's full of pot <laughs> but we couldn't get to it with the tools we had the drug smugglers originally packed the weed into 40-pound bales. Now those bales were soaking wet and half-frozen under the ice. Jack knew they were down there. He just couldn't see where. So the strategy was to dig a hole in the ice, which was a good eight inches to a foot thick, and then reach under and try to feel around for a bale. Wow. And that was cold water. <laughs> and there was one of us who seemed to be able to keep his arm in the cold water longer than I could. So he's the one who found the, the bail wow. that we uh, took home. And so once you found one, then it was a matter of chopping it out of the ice. It was wet and heavy. Uh, and the, uh, the pot uh, smelled like airplane fuel. Yeah, right. It's floating in it. Uh, yeah, yeah. And even when you dried it and smoked it, it smelled like airplane fuel. <laughs> Jack loaded the half-frozen bale of weed into his pack and started the long journey back down to the car. I was really, really worried. And just driving home with this whole car full of pot. And if we had been pulled over and opened the window, there would have been this smell. <laughs> like, it wouldn't, we wouldn't have been able to hide. You know, and it's like every pothead's nightmare. There's a police car coming up behind us with the lights going on. And it's just like, oh, God. And, of course, he just kept on going. <laughs> but... We were, yeah, it was, uh, it was very worrisome. And, uh, you know, none of us had ever <laughs> been involved in anything like this. I mean, we were all recreational drug users, and none of us had ever been involved in anything illegal besides that. At one point in the interview, Jack said he's the kind of guy who always waited in line. He followed the rules. But the drug plane, it was free money just sitting there for the taking. So he took some. And that first crime quickly led to another. And you were just keeping it? You weren't selling it? It was just like personal stuff? Oh, no. Oh, no. I sold it. <laughs> I sold through college. <laughs> My dad was always like, Jack's such a good saver. I don't know how he does. <laughs> how, where did he get all this money? <laughs> Being busted with dozens of pounds of weed in 1977 could have landed Jack in prison for life. Not to mention the fact that it was stolen from an active crime scene, or the fact that he intended to sell it. But it sounds like the whole situation was so unexpected, and for lack of a better word, 
fun that the dirtbags didn't even think about this. They never fully considered the criminal side to what they were doing or the morals behind stealing from a plane that still had dead bodies inside of it. People didn't think twice about going up there. I did hear some marks from certain people who didn't know I was involved that, what a disgusting thing to go up there and <laughs> pick over that crashed airplane. And I, I had never thought of it that way. And I don't think any of my friends would have. But the authorities did. By the spring of 1977, the Yosemite Park Rangers had realized what the dirtbags were up to. And they hatched a plan to stop it. Well, my name is uh, Butch Farabee. It's actually Charles, but I go by Butch. And uh, from 1971 to 81, I was a park ranger in uh, Yosemite, most of the time in Yosemite Valley. Butch was one of the first rangers on the scene after the plane was found in Lower Merced Pass Lake. And since that's a mouthful, I usually just say dope lake. Butch got his first clue that the dirtbags were up to something in early April. I get a call from this Bob, uh, from Bob's dive shop, who I had a relationship because I also work with him, uh, you know, as a, uh, in my capacity as a dive officer for the park. And he said, there are all these guys coming in, these climbers coming in who have absolutely no idea um, about diving, but they want to rent this equipment. Around that same time, a doctor at the Yosemite Clinic also noticed something strange. Dr. Wergler told me one time, he said, you know, Butch, I could tell when one of these uh, young people, mostly, I guess, would come into the hospital, into the clinic, with a certain kind of a cough. He said, I could tell what they'd been smoking. And it was because of this hydraulic fluid and just, you know, some probably pretty dangerous crap in the weed to begin with. So the park rangers called the Navy for help. And on April 13, 1977, the rangers piled into a Navy helicopter and headed up to Dope Lake. We put on board five or six uh, rangers that are armed to the teeth, which means in those days for us, they had shotguns. So they fly in and they see on this, the surface of this frozen lake all probably, you know, who knows, 15 or 20 uh, people out there with equipment and chainsaws and pickaxes and shovels and whatever. And uh, as soon as the military comes in, you know, the Navy helicopter, they all scatter like a covey of quail. They're They're gone. I feel like I should stop here to clarify something. I know it sounds like the dirtbags and the park rangers were on opposite sides of the law. And in this case, that's technically true. But the more we talked with Butch, the park ranger, the more we realized how much he shares in common with Jack and the dirtbags. He often worked alongside them on rescue missions around the park. And Butch was even a rock climber himself. The relationship between the rangers and the dirtbags who lived in Yosemite, it wasn't always black and white. But when the dirtbags saw a helicopter full of armed rangers descend on Dope Lake, the message must have been pretty clear. The weed gold rush was over. Back at Camp 4, though, things were just beginning. 
Jack and his fellow climbers had spent the last few months selling their Lodestar Lightning weed across California. And now, the guys who once ate food from dumpsters, they were sitting in Yosemite's fanciest restaurant buying steaks and $75 glasses of scotch. The facts are a little shaky about how much weed the dirtbag stole and how much money they made. Here's Butch. You know, in reality, it might have been, I think an educated thing would be maybe about a third of it disappeared. There are also these stories out there, and you can go again on some of these websites from people from that era who, who will claim that people bought houses and all kinds of jazz. Well, you know, I don't remember what the cost for dope was per pound in those days, but, you know, you might be lucky if you could get a pickup truck or a new set of camera equipment out of this. And this is Jack Menendez again. There are some people who made a lot of money off of it. They bought property. They built houses, using that as their capital. Uh, they put themselves into a legitimate business and did well, did very well off of it. Man, yeah, it, it, it seems like a life-changing event, kind of. You know, was, like It changed Yosemite, I think. You know, a bunch of dirt-poor dirtbags. All of a sudden, with all this money, and they were doing something completely different. Wow. uh, Yeah, it was a big thing. No matter how big the actual score was, it felt like a lot to the dirtbags. Slowly, they realized they might have put themselves in a dangerous situation, and not just because they were smoking jet fuel. Someone lost a lot of weed, and they might come looking for it. A climber named Jack Doran was particularly worried. When he was up at Dope Lake, he found a black notebook. It was filled with details about the smuggling operation. Names, dates, addresses, dollar figures. Once the paranoia set in, Doran took that book, tore it to pieces, and tried to hide the evidence in the woods. One morning, just a few weeks later, he fell to his death. Butch Farabee helped recover his body. And I know that there's at least one theory out there that, you know, the, uh, you know, the Russians or somebody else killed him, you know, but then you have to really get realistic and say, well, how the hell did they know that he's walking up this trail at five o'clock in the morning on this date? This is the first time I've heard the thing about the Russians, but there were plenty of theories about who the plane belonged to. There were rumors that everyone from the Italian mafia to the Mexican cartels were involved. But on June 16, 1977, authorities finally began an operation to haul the plane out of the lake and officially identify the bodies inside. Here's Butch again. We go down and we find the pilot who is still strapped to his chair sitting upright in the cockpit. This was the middle of June. The plane crashed in early December, so those corpses, they'd been in the water for more than six months at this point. The bodies were actually in pretty fair condition. I mean, given how long they'd been in this water, but it was also, you know, 33 degrees or whatever. Butch told us that the government already had a pretty good idea of who the men were, but they needed to be sure. So this other ranger and I, uh, the, the coroner, Don Coelho and I, we end up cutting off 20 fingers. We cut all the fingers off of, of uh, both hands, of both 
both guys and take and put each finger into a vial of formaldehyde or some sort of fluid. And they are all sent off to the FBI lab. And what the FBI lab did for us was, and we knew that they would they could do this, is that they would inject latex underneath the fingers and raise the fingerprints up uh, so that they could actually identify who these two guys were. Wow. I feel like I have to say that during the course of our research, River learned that the bodies were identified from dental records. So I'm not sure the FBI even used those severed fingers, but they had Butch chop them off anyway. In any case, in the summer of 1977, authorities confirmed that the co-pilot was a man named Jeff Nelson, and the pilot was a 31-year-old Vietnam veteran named John Gliske. Here's the thing. When we first started unpacking this story, the stakes felt strangely low. Sure, there were the rangers with shotguns and outlaw climbers selling felony amounts of weed. But aside from the paranoia at Camp 4, nothing too terrible happened. Jack Dorn's death was tragic, but it wasn't murder. Not one single dirtbag was ever caught or convicted. It almost felt like a victimless crime. Or it did until we learned about John Gliske. Because there's another side to this story, one that doesn't have anything to do with the dirtbags or Dope Lake. It's about a young mother named Pam Gliske, whose husband disappeared one day in December of 1976, and her 30-year journey to find the whole truth about what happened. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. How did you first meet Pam? Pam and I met in our junior year of high school in uh, Seattle. I left in 1966 for Palo Alto. She and I remained on the phone uh, pretty much every handful of months we would talk. Mm-hmm. And then I remember her mentioning that she had uh, met John Gluski and explained that he'd been a senior when we were a junior. This is Rick Schloss. He's one of Pam Gliske's oldest friends. He also became something of an amateur historian for the whole Dope Lake saga, but we'll get more into that later. First, let's start with John. What everybody told me about John Gliske was that, and this is an interesting mix, 
he was an adrenaline junkie pretty much all of his life. But he was also the pilot's pilot. And that was the actual phrase that these guys used to describe him. Literally, I guess they rewrote some of the uh, techniques that could be done with some of the helicopters because of what he actually performed, um, you know, in, in combat with the helicopter. John Gliske flew helicopters during the Vietnam War, and he was really good at it. But when he came home in 1970, he had to figure out a way to support his wife and baby. It's hard to imagine someone like John Gliske getting a 9-to-5. He had experience with war, and he loved high-risk situations his entire life. Plus, he could fly a plane with his eyes closed. So he started running drugs. The first thing he did was um, he went down to Mexico. I have a photograph of him crossing over the Mexican border uh, from Arizona or California, one of the two, in a big expedition backpack. He went down there three times to pick up a full load of marijuana and bring it back to the Pacific Northwest where they could get a better price for it. And I believe he made about three trips before he made enough money to buy his first airplane. That's when John's smuggling business really exploded. Pam said that they did it for, for six years. She knew about it from the beginning. She was aware of what he was doing. She used to talk to me on the phone and tell me about it. They were running uh, loads from, from Mexico. And she wasn't very specific about what loads meant. But back then, it was pretty much marijuana. Pam used to tell me that initially it was like once a week or once a month. And then eventually it got to be every day. So how much money was, was John making then? Must be abundant. Well, yeah, I asked Pam that. She said on the average they were making about 100000 run. Wow. Yes. He's running every day. $100,000 in the mid-1970s would be about half a million dollars today. So, yeah, John and Pam were making good money. She told me at one point, that it wasn't always cash. Okay. She said, you can remember one time, he came home with an attache case full of cut gems. Diamonds, rubies, emeralds, and sapphires. That was, oh that's, how we, that's how they got paid. The equivalent wow. of 100000 And she was expected to go around town in Seattle to jewelry stores and see if they wanted to buy raw gems. In early December of 1976, John Gliske and his co-pilot Jeff Nelson made their usual run down to Mexico. They offloaded in the desert outside of Las Vegas and then landed at a nearby airstrip to spend the night. That's where John bumped into an old friend from Vietnam. His name was Chuck. Chuck is beside himself. My God, I haven't seen these guys since Vietnam. They run over old times and they agree to go to, to lunch together, a dinner yeah. together that night. At that dinner party, Chuck is talking to Gliske, and Gliske says, kind of under his breath, he says, I think someone's trying to sabotage the plane. Wow. And uh, Chuck wants an explanation. So Gliske says, well, three times now, we found the left engine oil line cross-threaded. So it's been repaired two times, and now it's cross-threaded the third time. John told Chuck that he was going to get the oil line replaced after his next run, but he never made it that far. On December 9th, John, his plane, and over 3,000 pounds of weed crashed into the lower Merced Pass Lake. Pam knew something was wrong right away. Pam, usually the next night after a flight, John would call her. Mm -hmm. You know, everything's fine, all's cool. 
This time, the phone never rang. She immediately called the Civil Air Patrol to report John missing, but the search and rescue attempts came up empty. Her husband had disappeared completely. Eventually, Pam called Rick to tell him what happened. She just called up and said, "Um, John's missing. I think they've crashed. The reason why she thought they'd crashed is Pam has always had these um, dreams that always seem to come true. Pam had a dream that she saw John in water, upside down, surrounded by snow. Didn't know what that meant. The plane was found in Yosemite in late January. Authorities were able to trace it back to John thanks to the wing number. But no one bothered to tell Pam. For six months, while the dirtbags sold Lodestar Lightning and the park rangers flew helicopters to take back Dope Lake, Pam sat at home wondering what happened. She didn't hear anything until John's death was confirmed in June. Well, they not only finally got around to telling Pam, they sent a DEA agent to Pam. They were going to charge her with the only thing they thought they could get her on was the, um, the trashing of, of uh, National Park, literally. They wanted her to pay for uh, the, uh, the cleanup of the lake, the hauling wow. out. Uh, they finally dropped it because the evidence was another issue, but they finally dropped the lawsuit. And that's how Pam learned that they had confirmed. And as if that wasn't enough, Pam didn't even get John's ashes in the end. This is from an old recording of Rick talking to John's sister, Judy. The audio quality is a bit rough. I think that it must have been my parents who gave the permission for his body to be cremated. And I I don't know why that was allowed, because he was still married to Pam. But anyway, the ashes ended up, um, my parents have them. And they, I think that maybe they kind of tricked Pam out of them. This would be the end of Pam's part of the story, if it wasn't for Rick. In the 2000s, Pam reached out to her old friend with an idea. She called me in 2005 and said with the anniversary of her husband's death coming up, that she would like to write a book about their drug running days with the sole purpose of maybe she could save some young kid from... Uh, selling drugs to them. Mm, like a, so yeah. an, anti, an anti-drug dealing, anti-drug smuggling. Exactly, exactly. Mm. Yeah, I lost my husband, my daughter lost her father, uh, you know, grandfather lost his son, you know, that kind of conversation. That night, Pam searched John's name online. She was surprised to see it pop up on a rock climbing message board. I went to the site, she gave me the address, and sure enough, on one of the forums there, they're talking about the plane crash up in Lower Merced Pass Lake and all right. of the marijuana. And they're talking about it right here. But we didn't know any of that story. Yeah, Pam Pam just went for years not knowing that, not no. knowing what happened. No, and nobody from DEA or U.S. Customs, nobody told anything about that. Pam never heard a word about it. So Rick started looking into this story for Pam, and he found Butch Farabee. After I talked to Butch Ferby on the phone. Mm-hmm. Um, he said, hey, you know, I got a video for you. And, and that's when he sent me this CD with a video taken up at uh, Yosemite. And um, 
So he'd been asked to put on a presentation about what he called Dope Lake. They brought in a, a contract helicopter to help lift this stuff out. There's the first body. This is audio from Butch's slideshow. In the video, he's flipping through photos of the crash. His last slide is John Gliski's body in the water. There's the second guy. He's still in his seat. I remember making a copy of the video and sending it to Pam. Yeah. And in the final photograph is a shot of um, the bodies floating to the surface. And that was the first time Pam told me that she had closure. She was seeing a photograph of John and that uh, now he, she truly knew that he was dead. We reached out to Pam to see if she would speak with us for this episode. She declined, but she let Rick share her story. Why do you think she didn't feel comfortable talking? Well, after talking with her, I'll, I'll just tell you what she said. She Sure. Every time I would call her up with a piece of information, she would relive everything. She would have bad dreams for a week to two weeks, you know, of losing, of losing her husband, John. You know, the more she learned about it, the, the more she realized how much she'd been lied to. Wow. Yeah. And so she's still, she's really still carrying that pain around, you know, 40 years later. Even her daughter, when I asked her if she would be willing to be interviewed, um, you know, I I wouldn't even need to to use your name. She says, no, I don't even want to talk about it. Wow. Why is that? Because she lost her dad. Yeah. And she didn't just lose her dad. She lost her dad to running drugs when she was pretty young. So she was raised without a dad. And uh, that angered her quite a lot. Still does. River and I have been talking a lot about the dirtbags at Dope Lake lately. It's a great story in a lot of ways. But it feels a bit more complicated now. It's a great legend. It's a great story. Mm -hmm. In digging through it and, and learning about it, I realize that it's not a story. Right? It's a it's a real thing that happened. Mm. The thing that's different from a story in real life is like it's not neat and tidy, right? It doesn't exist in a vacuum. It's no longer just like this interesting, sexy nineteen seventies <laughs> rumor with like a lot of weed and yeah. hippies living off the grid and stuff. The truth is Right, there's not consequences quite, quite as fun. to it. Yeah. Yeah. There's like people who are still kind of living with the effects from it. Mm-hmm. You know, that stuff ripples out. A story has a beginning, middle, and end, and that's it. And this isn't a story. This keeps going. It's still going. Butch Farabee told us that Yosemite is full of bodies. Bodies of people who ventured out into the wilderness and never came back. Bodies that no one will ever find. And that's the world that the dirtbags chose to live in. When you care more about climbing than basic needs like what you'll eat and where you'll sleep that night. When you've lost friends and accidents doing the very thing you love most. Death is an ever-present threat. But it's also what makes you feel alive. It reminds me of something Jack Menendez said. 
He talked about scaling the sides of cliffs and then settling down by a river to fall asleep to the sound of the rushing water. I don't know if you've ever seen the face of the man on the moon, but it can be pretty pretty amazing when the first time you see it, like, oh yeah, I can really see a face there. And uh, if, you, if you sit by a river, and my dad had, had told me this, if you sit by a river and, and just listen carefully, you can hear voices. And so I did that, and sure enough, yeah, you can really hear that sounds like people talking in a restaurant. And uh, um, it's, it's a great way to meditate. And so that was his thing was, you know, you can use it to totally relax yourself. Uh, so he taught me that technique and uh, get over my anxiety about certain things. Life in Yosemite was a constant dance between life and death, risk and safety. It was about walking close enough to the edge to feel your own mortality, then coming back down and doing it all over again. John Gliske was chasing that same experience. But instead of rock climbing in Yosemite, he was sneaking planes full of drugs across the border. And so was Butch in his own way as a park ranger. It feels like everyone involved in Dope Lake had that in common. Well, everyone except Pam. And now Pam is the one who has to live with the consequences all these years later. Because, yes, it's a great story. But it's a real one. And the hurt is real, too. And for Pam, it's a pain that continues long after this story is done. Opportunist is a cast original podcast. It's produced by me, Hannah Smith, along with River Donahue and Amanda Elliott. Peisha Eaton and Kate Mays are associate producers. Colin Thompson and John Savak are executive producers. This episode was edited by Justin Kyle. Matt Sewell is our audio mixer and master. The cover art is by Arvin Lee. The ending credit song is Waltz for Zachariah on the album Show Late by Blue Dot Sessions. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? 
Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.